uh, before we before we get started, um, and not to stage too much of a fake introduction, uh, you know you're going on holiday. I need to I need you to say the following for okay. me. Yes. Well, that sounds that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Just yes. No. No. And that would be an ecumenical matter. That would be an ec- what was the word? Ecumenical. ecumenical. That would be an ecumenical manner, matter. Ah, fuck, fucked it, fucked it. Matter. That would be an ecumenical matter. Cool, perfect, great. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> you guys are making a podcast. For this. So welcome to the podcast nobody asked for with me, Ian Harries. And that's it. And this uh, and this week is quite literally a podcast nobody asked for. This week, and probably for this week only, it's just me. Uh, we thought you guys deserved an episode, even if Graham has decided to spend a couple of days gallivanting around New York, doing all of those fancy New York things. So I thought I would take the time to uh, talk about uh, history movies. The Ian Harry's History Section. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Oh, God. Uh, Because, I don't know if you guys know this, but I do actually have a history degree. So I can insert a jingle as well. Um, I mean, because it's me, I can just kind of set myself up with... The problem with that, though, is I, I might end up backing myself into a corner and just like over editing everything i've already had the urge to stop and re-record the intro but i feel like that's more audio book editing than actual podcast no idea how this is going to go um it's going to go one of two ways either this is going to be uh as expected a shorter episode than normal because it is just my three choices and not graham's or without having graham to kind of tether me in this is going to go on for like eight hours um, and it's only going to stop when my partner gets home and I have to stop talking. So, we'll just see what happens, shall we? So, I have decided to cover films that got history wrong. And kind of, I guess, the secret subtitle of that is Movies Graham Won't Let Me Talk About. Historical accuracy in a film is it, it's always interesting because it's always something which you kind of get a bit of, like, uh, actually, uh, I think you'll find that was incorrect. But I, I, I don't, you know, being being truthful i i don't think it is hugely important because obviously you're making a a film rather than making a fucking documentary or a textbook or something like that like and then when you look into it even deeper i mean there are some films which arguably if you'd gone as historically accurate as possible would have been completely boring as fuck so to to go for the obvious historical film that comes to mind cool runnings Cool Runnings is nothing like what actually happened in the Calgary Winter Olympics. There was no lucky egg. There was no carrying the bobsled down the last part of the track while the Swiss guy, like, just slowly claps. But if they'd done the real stuff, if they just were kind of a bit lackluster and it was great, it would have been a boring film. Same with Gladiator. So Gladiator is obviously the story of 
uh, Wacken Phoenix hugging uh, Marcus Aurelius to death. But the real Marcus Aurelius died of chickenpox, and the Wacken Phoenix character was drowned in a bathtub by a wrestler, which arguably would have been interesting to see, because I can only imagine, like, Triple H in a toga drowning Wacken Phoenix, which is a strange mental image, which I kind of wish I hadn't said now. But basically, the film would have been entirely different. It does make sense, you know, if you're making a film to kind of go for what appears more cinematic. But also, saying that, I'm dragging this concept out for a whole fucking episode, so I can kind of do what I want. And because uh, Graham's not here, I-, I can do what I want. Isn't that right, Graham? Yes. Yeah, it- it- it's fun. And like the-, the whole thing with historical accuracy, I think it's okay as long as. Or historical inaccuracy, I guess. It's fine if everyone is kind of in on, in on it being inaccurate. Um, so I think a lot of films kind of champion themselves as being, you know, they frame themselves to be like a true ac- account when really it was kind of a load of complete bollocks. And I think one of our choices, at least, one of our choices, one of our choices, at least, really kind of covers that. This is really weird, recording this by myself, isn't it? I mean, I, I miss, there's, there's no Bowie noises, there's no Graham stopping me from crowbarring things in. Uh, completely lost my train of thought there. I just miss him too much. But, yeah, so we, we are going to be covering, uh, we're going to be covering history. Um, and obviously, uh, I think everybody there, everybody out there wants to know more about, uh, more about, you know, history and, and kind of what I studied and things like that. Um, is it worth me, should I... Should I talk about that, Graham? No. Well, I, I'm I'm going to. So, yeah. So I, I I have a I have a history degree, which is nice. I often get viciously lampooned by my partner and our old housemate for bringing it up all the time. Which, if anything, is why I bring it up all the time. Because if I'm gonna be forced into a historical corner, I'm gonna put myself there. But yeah, I I did uh I. In terms of history, that's another thing. People who have a history degree will get this. Just because we did a history degree doesn't mean we know everything that ever fucking happened. Because what will happen is you'll be in a fucking pub quiz or there'll be uh, some thing on TV and they'll ask like, oh, who was the the second print left? Who was the second left handed king in Britain? And everyone would look at you as if for some reason, you know that. I don't, and I have no idea why that was the first random historical question I could think of. But yeah, I, so I did uh, history. I did my dissertation on. You guys still there? Uh, I did my uh, dissertation on uh, the Hollywood Ten, so the writers who were blacklisted, which was interesting. We covered the sixties at one point because that counts as history, uh, which also involved me looking in a lot of detail into communist science fiction which is a lot more interesting than it sounds but i legitimately think i could talk about that for a while and i'm worried i would completely alienate everyone and you guys would leave and i need to do at least try because if, if i make this episode good and interesting graham might let me talk about history again and that's kind of where you know i'm not saying we become a, a straight up history podcast but being able to talk about a couple of historical movies, I think, would be uh, would be an interesting way for us to go. But yeah, usually Graham would ask a stupid question, 
right now. What's your? I'm, I'm assuming it would be something along the lines of what's your favourite history? But he also wouldn't ask that because he know I would take that as a deep, sincere question and rattle off that I'm more interested in kind of your your Napoleonics, your muskets, your naval warship, your Vikings, your Kennedys, your Zulus. You know, because I am a, as stereotypical of a straight white man, uh, also big into military history and World War Two and all of that bollocks. But basically, if 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 muskets and swords were involved, generally I find that fascinating, and I'm not 100% sure why. I'm also very interested in kind of the it's like political history is always kind of a little bit dull because it always ends up just a long stream of. So this this treaty was signed uh, in 1607. Uh, but obviously, the treaty in 1609 <laughs> completely contradicted that one. It just gets a bit kind of dull. So I, I'm always a lot more interested in uh, so social history. So how how events actually impacted people and, you know, the actual lives that were lived under these events. Because, yeah, I, I, just, I just think it's interesting. What other stupid questions could Graham have asked? Um, do, do, does that, do any do any spring to mind, Graham? That would be an ecumenical matter. Yeah, no, no, that makes that makes sense actually. The fil- films that got the well, actually, we we can we can we will we'll we'll fuck this up differently, shall we? So let's go. I'm assuming actually n- n- now I've narrowed this down. Graham wouldn't have asked what's your favourite history. He would ask if there were any films that got the future wrong, because you know history is the past. It would have been a way for him at the very last minute to try and steer us away from me talking about history for a while. Yes. Um, so I did have a think, and there were a couple, there were actually a couple I was going to do as my uh, movie recommendation this week because, you know, that's the kind of cunt I am. But so 2001 A Space Odyssey, obviously, as the title suggests, uh, assumed that by 2001 we would have uh, convenient commercial space travel, which. As, as I'm assuming you guys already know, we did not. Planet of the Apes got the future, hopefully, a little bit wrong. I mean, we're not, we're not quite there yet. The Terminator had Judgment Day in the late 90s. Mission Man, which again, I think I brought up a couple of times and I still maintain is a fucking incredible film. The future of Demolition Man is set in like, I think, 10 years time. And the bulk of their future, oh, not the bulk of, but before... John Spartan gets frozen is the late nineties, and obviously that was that was quite wrong. Silent Green would be set this year, and obviously I don't think we've um, started eating people, even if nobody has been able to fully explain to me what uh, is in like the uh, McDonald's plant menu. That'd be an ecumenical matter. So maybe we just don't know. Blade Runner. Uh, so Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's 1982 movie that was set in 2019. And I remember 2019. You know, it was a good year. There were some big steps forward. I mean, phones got a bit smaller. Uh, there were some great kind of new graphics on video games and things like that. There weren't any moon colonies or giant pyramids randomly in the middle of cities, though. So they're a little bit, they were a little bit off there. And yeah, it, it, it's, it is always fun and a little bit nice when the future when you catch up with the future and you know the whole dystopian bollocks hasn't happened quite how you'd like it even though again i i think uh graham would probably want to slide in a 
Boris Johnson to comment there, right, Graham? Yes. And to be fair, he's right because Boris Johnson's a cunt. Um. Anyway, before before I dive into the the historically goodness of the episode, uh, it's time for my movie recommendation nobody asked for. So my movie recommendation nobody asked for this week is quite literally uh, a movie recommendation nobody asked for because if Graham were here, he would not let me recommend this film because last time I talked about this on the episode, he literally walked out of the room. So uh, my recommendation this week and the official, I want to be clear with that, the official, the podcast nobody asked for, movie recommendation nobody asked for, is 2003's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Master and Commander is a film by Peter Weir. It stars Russell Crowe as a Napoleonic-era ship captain, and it is about them in a big cat-and-mouse chase across the Pacific against a French frigate. And it is a fucking brilliant film. It is relatively historically accurate, and it is a very kind of interesting look at life on a ship in that era and given given it is two hours and 20 minutes long and re like there's not it's one of those films where not a lot actually really happens if you break it down but it manages to keep your interest through the whole thing so the combat scenes are incredible um it is very well cast and yeah it's i think i kind of touched on it previously the 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 issue you have sometimes with master and commander and probably anything that russell crowe does set in the past is it's very easy to refer to this as just like gladiator at sea and it's not i've read a couple of the books so they're by uh patrick o'brien and like in their credit russell crowe is a very good choice to play captain jack i think there's there's always been rumors of like a prequel series coming out and things like that so it would be very interesting to see whether that comes to to a head taron edgerton would be a very good young jack aubrey actually but you've also got i mean it it is russell crowe and it is paul bettany and one of the hobbits from lord of the rings is in it either merry or pippin i'll be honest i can't remember which one it is it's either Merry or Pippin. Well, no, it, it is Merry or Pippin, and it is the one who wasn't in Lost. So you had the one who was in Lost with the whole not penny ship bollocks, and then you had the other one who, the tomato eating cunt. You know the one I mean. The one who was not the tomato eating cunt. He was the, he was singing at the tomato eating cunt. You know, you know, the, you know the one I mean with the, the, the tomato eating scene in Lord of the, Lord of the Rings? Yes. And yeah, it, it's just, it's just a, brilliant film it's it definitely kind of i think puts people off because obviously it is a napoleon uh napoleonic era war film starring russell crowe and it's over two hours long but i everybody i have shown this to loves it it's one of those films where i actually i was on the caged in the coppola connections Caged podcast what is that? What is that? What is that? Okay. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! I love my eyes! Ah! 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 Ah!
friend of the podcast, Petros, and we referred to, uh, uh, we were talking about Airheads, which is the obvious comparison to Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. So similar to Airheads, people either seem to have uh, not heard of the film, not watched it, or love it. Like, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any kind of middle ground. Like, I, I don't know anyone who's watched it and didn't like it. But it is also, I think the people who would watch it are of a very, uh, a very set audience type, and the film seems to be kind of tailored towards them. But I would strongly recommend it because ships are great. If you want something a bit more, a bit less historical, a bit less kind of oceany, maybe, I would strongly recommend. It's a film that came out a couple of years ago now. It's a contemporary film, so it's set in modern time. It's set in uh, kind of basically a commune in Sweden. Uh, and that is obviously Ari Aster's Midsummer. Because even if Graham isn't here, we're keeping this going. You guys need to watch Midsummer. It is it is truly incredible film. I don't know whether we watched it at like the perfect time for it to like seep into our psyche, but it's uh as we've said before, and I hope this doesn't come across lightly, it's a fucking masterpiece. And with that note, uh, I think it's time to dive into my deeply detailed researched episode of films that got historically wrong. And uh, I think the first choice, um, and all of the choices, are mine. First choice on the list, uh, so this is a film from 2000, which, for those not keeping count, was 22 years ago and i'm not gonna lie that's made me sad and it's kind of put me ah oh, 2000 was 22 fucking years ago i i still measure i don't know i don't know about you guys i still measure as if 2000 was i seem to have missed 10 years in how i calculate time so i'm talking about so this i this is a film set in the 1940s it is a film so historically inaccurate it was mentioned in the Houses of Commons by then Prime Minister Tony Blair as being an affront to British sailors. Not only that, but the MP for Pudsey wrote an angry letter to Bill Clinton, basically asking for uh, pointing out how insulting this was to the British Navy. Uh, so that's kind of the level of historical wrongness that we're talking about here. So this went, this was transatlantic political wrongness so this is 2000s u571 so uh so yeah so this is 2000s u571 so u571 follows uh basically an american submarine called the s33 which is designed to resemble a german u-boat so u-boats were basically the german submarines during um the second world war that took place in the battle of general primarily in uh, the Battle of the Atlantic, it stars. Uh, so to be fair, it stars kind of a hell of a cast. So it's got Matthew McConaughey, Bill Paxton, uh, Harvey Keitel, and obviously for a war film, John Bon Jovi. Because when I'm thinking of who I want to be cast in a submarine thriller, I always think of the guy who sung "Living on a Prayer." But yeah, so this basically follows this uh, this crew as they ultimately end up stealing uh, an enigma machine and codebook so the enigma machine for anyone who's watched the imitation game is it the imitation game 
Now, now, now I've said that without having it written in front of me. The Imitation Game just sounds like a reality TV show. And I'm worried that I'll now be talking about The Imitation Game as if it's a very serious Second World War film. And actually, it's like a fucking Noel Edmonds quiz from the 80s. But The Enigma Machine was basically how the Germans wrote these coded messages so efficiently. Uh, it basically just looks like a typewriter. Famously, it was uh, decoded at Bletchley Park by people like Alan Turing. And yeah, The Imitation Game obviously also has its historical flaws, but it's a good insight into, you know, that side of the war, because I don't think a lot of people really appreciate the, the sheer intellect and strategy that went into solving stuff. Thanks for sticking with me. I know this isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea. Yes. So the movie is loosely based on the HMS Bulldog and the HMS Aubracious bombing of U-1110, which led to the recovery of an Enigma machine and a codebook. As, as the more intuitive of you may have noticed, that was the HMS Bulldog and the HMS Aubracious. And they were British ships. In fact, out of 15 machines captured during the war, 13 were captured by the British, one was captured by the Canadians, and one was, to be fair, captured by the Americans. Though I couldn't find any notes of whether it was Matthew McConaughey. That would be an ecumenical matter. But also, by the point the Americans captured one, we were routinely decoding naval traffic, or naval enigma traffic, already. So, you know, it was, it was nice of them, but we were kind of there. So the main issue with this film is that it is suggesting that the first like groundbreaking enigma capture was by American sailors and not the British. Thus, the political situation. Thus, Tony Blair speaking in the House of Commons and um, politicians writing letters to fucking Bill Clinton. I was about to say phrasing for fucking Bill Clinton, but... We know that's kind of accurate. Yes. So what's interesting with this one is, so Sub-Lieutenant David Balm, who was the officer who led the boarding party, the actual boarding party, so not Matthew McConaughey, the actual boarding party in World War II, uh, referred to U571 as a great film and believed it wouldn't have been financially viable without being Americanized. So it's quite interesting that people who this was arguably the most offensive to have still recognised that eh, it's a film. But also, it's a film with John Bon Jovi, so I still probably would have been slightly annoyed that they hadn't cast uh, someone else. David Ayer, so the, the writer, says he regrets distorting history and referred to it as a mercenary decision to create this parallel history in order to drive the film for an American audience. And I just kind of find that a bit funny, that you... you even people close to the film have kind of realised that to get Americans to watch films, it has to be fucking centred around them. There's a great British comedy. Have you heard of it, Graham? No. Called Winston Churchill, or Churchill, The Hollywood Years, which has, like, Christian Slater, um, and I'm fairly sure you've also got uh, incredible British comedic actors, like, I think, Rick Mail and Harry Enfield and people like that are in it. Winston Churchill is actually an American GI, and... Yeah, it just kind of riffs on all of this, kind of the, the demand to make everything as American-centric as you can. Um, there's also a fucking brilliant sketch about it on uh, Monkey Dust, which I realise now, now I've said that out loud, that just sounds like um, a drug uh, that I'm talking about, a film that was made on, like, fucking meth. But Monkey Dust was, I think it was like a BBC3 
would you call it a sketch show? It was like an animated cartoon and it was fucking weird. Like the kind of like dark and disturbing where I would say half of the sketches on it, you they just weren't funny. Some of them were just heartbreaking. Some of them were the funniest shit I ever saw. And some of them still like eat away at part of my brain that I'm not particularly comfortable with. But they do, uh, I think they got two that spring to mind. They have Crusades movie, a fake Crusades movie trailer that comes out. And obviously it's these knights from America um, who are all part of their high school football team. The like Saladin in it is played by like Brian Blessed. And it just kind of takes the piss. And then you also have, they do an Anne Frank one where Anne Frank is Irish. And it's all, it, it, it is a spot on representation of kind of the the apparent need for the American centric stuff that films like this bring up. And it is, it is interesting. Um, I mean, like I said, like it, it, it's, it's not something, making a 100% accurate war film is going to be quite difficult because obviously 100% accurate, especially World War II, it's just it's just going to be fucking horrifying. Like we don't necessarily, you know, you don't need a film to be 100% accurate. The the issue here is that it is masquerading this real very real important event and it feels like it is kind of fiction disguised as fact rather than just toying because I, I don't as far as I'm aware and I I did a little bit of work. I think basically they asked the studio to add like a uh like I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre has, like the, the this is this is based on true events, but the facts, whatever, have been changed, and they didn't. So I, I think that's the problem there is that, that there would have been a way to do this, but you had to kind of hold your hands up a little bit and go, hey guys, this is all bullshit. But it's not just the fact the Enigma Machine side of things; it's also kind of how they depict other things in the film as well, which is a little bit, again, without them. I, I, I get it, the decision, but it is always kind of a bit unsettling, especially kind of now looking back. So the film depicts U-boat sailors as machine gunning allied merchant crewmen from a sinking ship as they're just kind of floating in the sea. And in reality, U-boat sailors were far more often known to have assisted survivors with food, aid and directions rather than just gunning them in the sea. You then had, uh, I think it was called like the Laconia Order, which forbid rescuing survivors, which was introduced, um, but which was also a, it, that the Allies had their own version of that as well, which was like war order, something, something, something. But even then, there, there was still only one case of a U-boat crew deliberately attacking survivors. And it, it, it's obviously, I get like, you have to have like your, your villains in a film, but it just, it, it, it comes across a bit more as kind of like, a, it is a bit of an offensive, like dehumanization of, the other side to just depict that this was something that was done all the time but yeah it's all it, it all got things very very wrong and like i said i i, I get films can't be 100 percent accurate but I, I feel like if you're if you are taking events that actually happened and crediting them to entirely different people like even if you did this film and it wasn't the first enigma machine that was captured it was just a enigma machine that was captured it kind of puts a different spin on it, but claiming that you're the... It would be like if Cool Runnings ended and they'd won the gold medal. Like, you're saying it's a true story and you're not crediting the right people for the events, and it just doesn't sit well with me. It's not a bad film. 
there are better submarine films. I mean, if you if you're for some reason you've just listened to me ramble about this and your takeaway is, hey, you know what? I want to see more about these U-boats. Das Boot, the German film, which follows a U-boat a U-boat crew, is probably the best submarine film ever made. And watch that instead of this. Okay. Do you do you, what? Do you have a choice, Graham, or shall I just uh, go straight onto mine? No. And why is that? That would be an ecumenical matter. Right. That's fair. So my next choice then is it's weird that I I still have that inflection as if I'm talking to Graham. We're going to go more into deep history. Everyone, all right? If you want to pause this, go get a coffee or a tea. Come back. We can do that. So next choice. I'm not going to tell you the film I'm talking about until uh, until the end. Instead. I'm going to briefly go through the events as they actually happened. So, the Battle of Thermopylae was fought between an alliance of ancient Greek city-states led by King Leonidas I of Sparta and the first Persian emperor of Xerxes I. Can you guess the film yet? Yes. It was fought at some point in 480 BC over the course of three days during the second Persian invasion of Greece, the first having been repelled at the Battle of Marathon uh, ten years before. So the plan of the city-states was to block the advancing Persian army at the Pass of Thermopylae and simultaneously block the Persian navy in the Straits of Artesium. Herodotus puts the Persian army at one million soldiers. So Herodotus was, he's like the guy, he's like the father of history. So he wrote like the first history book, basically. And it's great. So I did uh, ancient history in my first year at uni, and we covered the Peloponnesian Wars and all of this shit. And it's fucking hilarious because you end up... So in an essay once, I quoted a Herodotus quote, which was basically along the lines of, so Herodotus heard this from a guy who knew someone who heard from this person that was nearby that this was said. And it just feels like it's all made up. And I just always found that a bit funny. In fact, I... Actually, we'll, co- we'll come on to uh, further university anecdotes later. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so Herodotus put the Persian army at about a million soldiers, but it's probably closer to... I mean, people have it anywhere between 100,000 and 300,000. So it was still like a massive fuck-off army, but we're not talking a million people. But it was still, for the time, an absolutely insane and colossal amount of soldiers. So a force of about 7,000 men comprised of Lacedaemonians, Spartan Hoplites, Mantenians, Tegans, Arcadians, Corinthians, Philians, Mycenaeans, Thespians, which is, I think, a nationality rather than just a bunch of actors, maybe John Bon Jovi, uh, Malians, Thebians, Phaeacians, and Locrians, and other people. Basically, people from a number of these Greece city-states managed to hold off uh, the Persian army for seven days, with three of those being actual battle. So there were two full days of battle um, they managed to hold. So the Mapley, um, or the, I think it was called the Hot hot Roads, the Hot Pass, something like that. Um, It was basically a very narrow strip of land between, um, well, it's just a very narrow strip of land, which forced, forced the Persians into a bottleneck which then perfectly set up how the Greek cities, and especially the Spartans, would fight during this time. So they would fight in... Uh, fucking hell, I am so boring. Because not only... like I get I'm talking a lot about history, but I am, 
I am so happy about all of this and I find it so interesting and I've just kind of like had an out-of-body experience of hearing myself talk and yeah oh god I'm a boring man but anyway so the Spartans fought in basically a phalanx formation which relied basically on very very heavy armor and a big pointed stick and they would get into that formation and then the Persians would just basically wash up on them and nothing would because the Spartans were so heavily and highly trained from birth, and that's a, another thing we can kind of cover, they were just all very good at what they did. And because the, the nature of the pass as well completely downplays the strength advantage or the, the numbers advantage, because even though they had 7,000 men and the Persians had, you know, three, we'll, we'll say 300,000, you can only fight the people if you're near them, right? So by forcing them into a narrow pass, it meant the people at the back of the army are never going to be able to get close enough to the Spartans to actually hit them. So it kind of is a way of evening the numbers. And then you also factor in that the Persians were kind of very lightly armoured, while, like I said, the, the Greeks were a lot more heavily armoured in, like, fucking thick brass armour. And the Spartans as well weren't all the... Greek city-states weren't particularly interested in a decisive victory. They just kind of had to hang out and stop the Persians getting past them, which, and it was the, the, again, the perfect environment for it, and it was the perfect method of fighting, and the only reason that they lost was that a small shepherd path was shown to the Persians by some random shepherd dude, which meant that they could outflank them. Uh, Leonidas then dismissed the bulk of the army and remained with a rear guard of 700 thespians, possibly 400 Thebans, 900 helots, which was like a slave caste basically in Sparta, and 300 Spartans. So obviously, as soon as I said Leonidas, everyone knew I was talking about 300 here, right? Yes. That was that was kind of obvious. Uh, so 300 is the Zack Schneider film. It, it's It's so silly. And I've got so much time for that. Like, I know we dick on Zack Schneider a lot on this podcast, and rightfully so, because he's made some awfully offensively bad films. But, like, he has his sweet spot, right? And this kind of thing, I think, is it. It is, it is entirely flashover substance, and that is 100% fine. So 300 is an adaptation of 300, which is a Frank Miller graphic novel. And the graphic novel is fucking brilliant as well. Um, I would strongly recommend getting a hold of that if you can. So I, uh, like I said, so I, I actually quoted uh, 300 in an exam I did uh, in first year, which I, I still great. I, I also once um, referred, uh, I opened an essay with the line, a notable scholar once said, freedom is the right of all sentient beings. And what I didn't mention was that is a direct Optimus Prime quote. So this is the kind of shit I live for, which probably explains why um, why I am who I am. But after the after that exam, uh, I actually walked walked out of the exam and met some friends outside, and one of them had to tell me to go home because I drank so much caffeine before the exam and hadn't really slept. Because in first year, what I would do was I would cram revise until about two in the morning sleep until about five, revise up until just before the exam, sit the exam, and then just die. Um, but uh, she had to tell me to go home because I drank so much 
energy drink and coffee that I was quite literally just vibrating and talking really quickly. She still randomly brings that up. I saw her yesterday. So 300 is an adaptation or, or 300 is an adaptation of a graphic novel, which is the story of this battle, which is the Spartans versus the first Persian Empire. And that, to be fair as well, it doesn't get a lot of, I don't think the Persian Empire gets kind of the, the coverage it does over here, but at the time it was larger than any previous empire. And it spanned a total of 2.1 million square miles. So it's not like, it wasn't anything to turn your nose up at. This was, this was a proper, like, David versus Goliath thing. So I briefly there kind of went through the Battle of Thermopylae and how it worked. And what we will now do is go through 300 and we will just kind of very briefly, like a little flying tour of the things that didn't happen at the Battle of Thermopylae. So number one on my list here is Xerxes was not a nine foot tall giant with a voice like one of those dudes from Stargate. You all remember the scene. Xerxes is on his giant like fucking golden seat thing. I can't remember what they're called, but you know, those things that people carry and slowly comes up to Leonidas. He walks down, people form steps for him because he's that kind of dude. And he's a giant with a really weird fucking voice. So I wonder if I can... Again, talking about editing myself into a fucking corner. Like, I wonder if I can kind of just change my voice here so it sounds like Xerxes, so you guys kind of get what I mean. But, I don't know, can I? Is it just underlying my voice slightly deeper over this? Anyway, that might have worked. If it didn't, just assume I was too lazy to actually do it. Uh, so, yeah, I don't really think I need to explain that one, do I? It didn't happen. Xerxes wasn't nine foot tall. Even if he was tall for the time, he wasn't nine foot tall. And he didn't have that fucking voice. Stargate was great, though, wasn't it? Number two on the list. Uh, Spartans did not primarily utilize armor based on their abs. So, as we know, 300 predominantly featured greased-up, muscly guys. Which, don't get me wrong, good, good for them. Like, fair play. Like, the 300 has kind of become like a synonym for... It's become like a workout type, right? Like, 300 is now shorthand for an entire body aesthetic. Similar to Spartacus, I actually did some of the workouts the Spartacus people did. That sounds like I came up with them. I didn't. I read an article in Men's Health that outlined a load of them, and I did them as well. And that was the closest I've ever come to flat out throwing up at the gym. But, yeah, like I said, the whole phalanx formation and things like that, it, it, you need armor. You can't just have your, your fucking chiseled abs on display but also if i looked like that i would probably have my abs out the entirety of the time and i don't think i'm the only one there i think anyone listening this anyone listening to this who who just anyone listening to this it take a lot of effort to get abs as well like you know right so yeah that's not that's not a thing that happened three the persian army did not employ musical goats because there is a scene where a goat-headed man or a goat-headed thing plays like a sitar or a flute or something. Like it's a proper blink and you'll miss it, but it's a fucking goat dude. Like that's not... Well, obviously goat-headed things are a thing because you have goats. But (laughs) as far as I'm aware, there wasn't at the Battle of Thermopylae a humanoid goat with a musical playing ability. 
There may have been a humanoid goat. I don't know. But I'm assuming if there was someone there fucking jamming out in a tent with the head of a goat, somebody would have written it down. Even if it was just like a letter, like, my dearest love, tomorrow we go into battle against the Spartans again. Also, there's a fucking goat-headed thing here, and he can play the flute. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if he'll play Freebird. And, yeah, like, I don't know, symbolism maybe? But it's a goat-headed dude. There was no rhino cavalry either, which is a shame. There was no elephants. Um, there were nearly elephants at, uh, in the American Civil War. But that's a historical fact for another day. There were no weird lobster dude executioners. So when Xerxes executes some of his own people, there's a weird fat dude with his arms cut off that are replaced with saws and he cuts the heads off people. And that's not a, that's not, that, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not a thing. That's not something that happened there. Uh, there were no grenades. So this is, this is getting slightly back into, because obviously there was no fucking weird lobster dudes, right? That's not like a type of person that went extinct. Slightly more, aha. Uh -huh. Uh, there were no uh, grenades, so black powder wasn't invented until the 9th century, and the, the region itself wouldn't have had it until the mid-13th. So, the dudes throwing grenades? You're wrong. The Spartans also didn't immediately run out of their protected valley, because they line up perfectly at the beginning, they do like their whole Hwah! bollocks, and then as soon as the Persians come at them, they just run out and start fighting with swords. Like, it looks cool, but no. Ninth on my list, because this list could have kept going, so I've got ninth and final. Sloth from the Goonies was not involved. So the guy who showed them the shepherds, the, the guy who showed the Persians the shepherds pass was just a dude who kind of, it sounds like he was just a dude who lived in the area. He is a footnote in history and no one cares about him. He wasn't a, Spart a deformed Spartan who lived in the woods, who looked like a, the freakish love child of Sloth and Quasimodo. I'll just briefly pause, let that sink in. But yeah, that's, that's generally, that, that's, Sloth was not there, which is a shame, but Sloth was not there. And all of this is before you kind of factor in how generally fucked up life in Sparta was. So yeah, the, the, the Spartans weren't, they weren't, I mean, this whole era, era was rife with what could only be described as massively fucked up people. And having the Spartans as like these bastions of freedom and things like that is all kind of a bit weird, isn't it? But yeah, 300, um, it, was, it was crazy over the top by design. And that also means that the history was bad. But in like Zach Schneider's credit, I think that I, I tried to find this quote, but I couldn't find it. But I remember reading somewhere that he basically said he completely ignored the history. Uh, with the choice between historical accuracy or making something look badass, they went with badass every time. And that's kind of fine. And also that there is, so, so also this is the remake of a graphic novel, it's not a view of actual history, which is fine, but this is also my podcast today and I, I can do what I want. Yes. And for even more credit, um, and this is actually kind of an argument I, I've, or a defense for 300 before, so it is, you know, I'd be completely lying to you all if I didn't say it. So you could argue that this whole film is actually, I can't remember the character's name, but he plays Faramir, basically him retelling it to the people to kind of like big them up, fuck up the, uh, the Persians at the next uh, battle they face, which was Plataea? 
can't remember, but basically a story to psych them up. So, like, obviously he's going to make them seem super monstrous and things like that. So you could argue that, you know, maybe maybe this film is 100% historically accurate. It's just being told by a dude who likes to embellish shit. And that, that was always kind of my reading of the film. But that also meant that I couldn't record myself saying phrases such as weird lobster dude. And to be honest, I think our lives are all a bit better for that. Okay, so final choice then. Final choice. And for those still here, I, I appreciate it. Graham, you still here? No. No, to be fair, you, you never were. So for my final choice, uh, I thought, hey, you know what? You know, you know who's an absolute piece of shit who's obviously going to have made historically accurate films? Mel Gibson. So I had a couple of choices for historically inaccurate Mel Gibson movies. Uh, so we had The Patriot, where Mel Gibson plays a sympathetic father figure who's based on a real-life dude called The Swamp Fox who hunted Native Americans for sport. We also have Pocahontas. Arguably the choice I really should have gone here, but this way, and by this point, you know, you know, if I've already mentioned Patriot and Pocahontas, you know the, the film we're going to be talking about. But yeah, if I'd gone for Pocahontas, I wouldn't have been able to crowbar in the Six Nations, and uh, that's not something I'm willing to not do. So Pocahontas, there is first of all absolutely no historical writings that say that she did in fact paint with all the colors of the wind god have a beautiful voice but yeah uh, pocahontas was uh, a child for one john smith was a cunt and pocahontas was renamed rebecca and then died at the age of 22 so yeah that film and that's before we get onto the fucking conversation of whitewashing history and all that shit but Pocahontas was you know songs are great um just around the river bend all that stuff the fucking mother tree cunt it's great so yeah obviously uh I'm talking for my final choice about Braveheart so I'm recording this on uh so today is Friday the 11th of February so the Wales Scotland game is tomorrow So this episode will come out after that game. So I don't want to seem like I'm picking Braveheart solely to bitterly pick apart something that Scotland holds quite dear to itself. Though, I won't lie, there might be a little bit of pre-bitterness to this because I don't particularly think it's going to go incredibly well for us tomorrow. First of all, credit where it's due and... England rugby fans don't really seem to be doing this, which is always fucking annoying. Scotland have a very, very good... This is by far the strongest Scottish team I've seen in a long time. And... Okay, you know what? New jing... Well, fucking hell. So, new jingle here, which is just going to be... Ian talks about rugby. Absolute and total disappointment. Yeah, so like as a as a Scarlets fan, I always loved John Barkley. So John Barkley was captain of the Scarlets for a while. But this is like the Scottish team is scary, and they all also seem to be firing. And I think they're gonna fucking carve through us tomorrow. Our back row's good. I'm very excited to see Jack Morgan play. I think Morgan and Basham are gonna be they they they're gonna be folding people in half from one side of the pitch to the other, but I just don't have a lot of 
I the bench Scotland are going to bring on is going to absolutely fuck us in the scrum in the last twenty minutes. I don't think our uh, we we seem to have an issue where Wales hasn't produced a centre for the last like five years, and we're slowly running out. I don't even play centre, but I think I'm close to being called up if anything else goes wrong. But yeah, we uh God, it'll be very Welsh. It'll be very Welsh and very Scottish for us to actually win, but I don't see it happening. Um, so future Ian, did we win? So yeah, uh, basically ignore everything I just said there. Wales won twenty to seventeen. Uh, it was a good game. It was it was fun to watch. I could talk about this for a while, but basically, we did well. Uh, the only correct thing I probably said in the last minute or two was that Tame Basham and Jack Morgan would play really well, and they did. They were fucking great. And so was everyone else. And the scrum was good. And all the jackling was great. And we didn't make any really like obvious stupid mistakes, even though I still don't fully understand the, the drop goal at the end. It was, yeah. That was nice. Anyway, fuck Braveheart. Cool. So, um, yeah. So I'm talking, about, I'm talking about Braveheart. So Braveheart, Elizabeth Ewan describes Braveheart as a film that almost totally sacrifices historical accuracy for epic adventure. And John O'Farrell claims that Braveheart could not have been more historically inaccurate even if a plasticine dog had been inserted into the film and the title changed to William Wallace and Gromit. And I just want to take a moment there and just just bask in how incredible a fucking idea that is. Because, you know, say what you want about Braveheart, William Wallace and Gromit is an absolutely fucking top-shelf pun. Like, I would watch William Wallace and Gromit in an absolute fucking heartbeat. And also, the wrong trousers would probably be a little bit more historically relevant. So, oh, actually, there, there is a joke. A joke we can come back to later, if I remember. So, there are a lot of issues with Braveheart. Firstly, and, you know, let's acknowledge it, Mel Gibson. What a piece of shit. So there are a lot of issues with Braveheart outside of how big a cunt Mel Gibson is. Number one, Braveheart wasn't a term used to refer to William Wallace. And I didn't really realise that. But yeah, so Braveheart wasn't William Wallace. It was Robert the Bruce. And it seems to have come from a story where someone like took Robert the Bruce's heart on the Crusades and just like said, follow this Braveheart and then just like, heaved it at the other side because that's something that people would do um the film seems to imply scotland had been under english occupation for some time but was actually only invaded a year before wallace's rebellion so that's all of that side of the story out the window prima noctis apparently there's not really a lot of historical evidence that was ever a thing so that's the whole idea that a lord could legally have sex with anybody below his standing um, which is a big part at the beginning of the film. But yeah, that probably wasn't actually a thing that happened. In the film, William Wallace seduces Isabella of France, who was Edward II's wife. And William Wallace then also fathers, uh, or out of this seduction, William Wallace fathers Edward III. So this was all while, while Isabella was sent to... Uh, negotiate around like the Battle of Falkirk or something. So at the Battle of Falkirk, Isabella in real life would have been three years old. And Edward III wasn't born until seven years after Wallace's death. So 
I can't say for certain, but I don't think he's the dad. I, I don't, let, let's put it this way, I think it's so cut and dry he wouldn't have got onto Maury. There would be no, there'd be no DNA testing or, or, or lie detectors or anything like that. William Wallace, that's just, that's just not something that happened, guys. It's just not a thing. The Battle of Stirling Bridge in the film, which is, so I think CNN had it as one of their best, like, battle scenes. And, like, it is good, but given it's the Battle of Stirling Bridge, there's no fucking bridge. It's just a load of big dudes in kilts running across a field into a load of British people. And it's the, it's the one th- defining feature of the Battle of Stirling Bridge is Stirling Bridge. So the whole reason they won was, again, kind of similar to the 300 thing. It was funneling people into a narrow, uh, narrow space. Apparently, there's an anecdote from set that when asked by a local why the Battle of Stirling Bridge was filmed on an open plain, Gibson answered that the bridge got in the way, and the local responded, that's what the English found. And you know what? I like that. That's very fucking well done. William Wallace wasn't a hero from humble beginnings either. He was, like, a lower noble. So he was still, like, the gentry. So that's, that's that bit out of the way. His woad war paint. So the, the, what you think about when you think of Braveheart, that was kind of, that hadn't really been used for like a thousand fucking years. That was, that was a long time before Braveheart. And then the tartan kilts they're wearing are 500 years too early. So everything about the aesthetic that they've got of William Wallace and the Highlanders is wrong. And I read something uh, that basically said it would be very similar to colonial history. So if in The Patriot, for example, they'd rocked up wearing modern day 20th century suits, but with the jackets the wrong way around, because apparently they also aren't wearing a lot of these kilts, assorted kilt paraphernalia correctly anyway. And yeah, that's just, that's just what it is, isn't it? So Mel Gibson, to be fair, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say the phrase in Mel Gibson's credit, because fuck that guy. But Mel Gibson has pointed out, so this is a direct quote, some people said that in retelling the story, we messed up history. It doesn't bother me because what I'm giving you is a cinematic experience, and I think films are there first to entertain, then teach, then inspire. And to be fair, like, the film is entertaining, and the film also very clearly inspires, but yeah, it turns out it teaches you a lot of very wrong shit. Like, the, 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 the driving lesson away from Braveheart you can take is that William Wallace was a Scottish dude, and that's, that's really it. It's not a bad film, by any like, stretch of the imagination. I, I, I've never quite bought into it as the masterpiece some people seem to think it is. But yeah, it's, uh, it got a lot wrong, guys. So Braveheart, Bra- Braveheart is the final choice. And like I said, this was done before the game. All our Scottish listeners out there, I appreciate you guys. And, you know, the traditional fuck you, Mel Gibson. But yeah, it's just not, it's not, it's not a bad film. And again, kind of like what Mel Gibson said, like, I I get the, I get why some of the decisions were made. It definitely makes it kind of a more interesting story than it necessarily would have been. But again, it's the fact that it is painted as truth rather than painted as a story. And also, it meant that we just got to shit on Mel Gibson for 10 minutes. And, you know, 
that's always good. Okay, so that is that. That was our choices. Uh, Graham, do you have any? Uh, what do you think number one should be? That would be an ecumenical matter. That's uh, that is a that's a fair thing to say. But well, actually, no, I, I I can't even say what's the top three of your three because which is the closest. Well, fuck, I have a catchphrase. But yeah, I can't even say the top three of our three because obviously the top three of my three is the top three of the episode. So. You know, I, I have full creative control over here. And for Graham, if, if Graham is listening to this, if he has managed to get this this far, I'm assuming he would have, just to hear if I'd taken the opportunity to just, like, randomly research, like, jokes about Watford or something like that. But we have... Uh, so this was, again, this was mentioned on my time on Caged In. Caged Podcast. What is it? What is it? What is it? It's podcast. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, my eyes! Ah! 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 briefly mentioned on episodes but graham and i keep track of how many choices of ours made each final top three we get a bonus point if our league of good bad movies choice gets picked there's been a couple of half choices because uh we've had like either an honorable mention or we've smushed things together yeah we we do we do keep track of that and just just so this is on record graham these choices are obviously going to fall outside of that. I'm not just giving myself three bonus points because we also talked about possibly having a bonus point if somehow all three of our choices made the top three. So that's not going to happen. It's game on as normal. This is this is like outside of podcast canon. But yeah, for me, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a relatively simple top three, I think. So number three for me is 300. It is arguably the most historically inaccurate, but because there is a reading, re- a reading of the film that kind of explains that, in that it is a guy telling a story designed to psych and hype people up, you can kind of get around it a little bit, and you could also even argue it is the most historical film ever made because it's a dude telling a story. Number two for me, I'd probably go Braveheart. Again, there was a lot of wrong history in that. I do kind of get why they made the choices they did but it was still very wrong and then number one is then it's u571 it was very very wrong it was so wrong it caused a bit of a political situation and yeah it it, it feels it feels a little bit offensive the way it was kind of positioned as a definitely you know the way at least it was implied or they did nothing to stop the implication that it was an entirely true story. I think there was more that could have been done. And again, like there was, it was a a very major part of World War Two was uh, everything to do with the Enigma machines. And yeah, it just it doesn't. This is all of these films have got history wrong, but U five seven one is the only one that doesn't like it doesn't sit right. It still feels kind of a little bit a little bit odd. But yeah, so the podcast nobody asked for's top three films that got history wrong. Uh, number three, we have 300. Number two, we have Braveheart. And number one, we have U571. Uh, if you agreed with our choices, uh, if you managed to get through to the end uh, of 
basically a solid hour of me just fucking talking at you. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the podcast nobody asked for. And you can also find us on Patreon at the podcast nobody asked for, where you become a friend of the podcast and basically just help support us make this bigger and better and more widespread and just permeate into the cultural society of this land. You can also find us on Twitter at nobody asked. I've never done this bit. You can also find us on Twitter at nobody asked for pod with the number four, um, where you can tweet at us all of the, if there are any history films that you history. We're also on Facebook and remember to leave us a review on Apple podcast and Podchaser and Spotify. And in your reviews, put any future episode ideas you may have and we will do the best ones yeah and please uh please base your reviews on a normal episode not one that was just me talking about history for an hour so yeah thanks and thanks for listening uh i hope you enjoyed your holiday graham but yeah so that was that was the first uh the first so we've we've had guests but we've never had negative numbers so uh that was that was that it's weird to sum up for myself. Uh, do, do I end on a big crescendo or do I just kind of peter off? Yes. Ugh, no one asked for this. Can't believe I talked for that long.